I'll stop recording these. I've been thinking about it a couple times. But I actually got two views last week. <laughs> unless, unless you guys, did you guys, did you check it out? Uh-uh. All right, so well, so the option is, or the opportunity is through my Twitter account. There's, it's a link, or it just says. Mm-hmm. Of course, I got it on my truck and whatnot. So hey, two views is better than no views. <laughs> so. Are you recording now? I am recording now. So you have any comments? <laughs> Nobody's gonna listen to us. You can say whatever you want. But now we're back in Romans chapter nine, and yes, as uh, anybody listening on the YouTube channel, if you're the one, if you're the two, you can go back and listen to all the other Romans and catch back up. Because Romans is it's it's difficult, it's theological, but there's things in Romans that you can only find in Romans. And we you know when we went to Romans chapter one. And that kind of was what we did last week with the birth to new birth. It shows how, you know, what we went through. People born in sin, that's in Romans 5. People, everybody, everybody suppresses general revelation. That's explained in Romans 1. And uh, and we'll be talking about election today. That's in Romans 9. And then how some very... Um, uh, Romans 11 is about Israel... And there's some things in Romans 11 you're just not going to find anywhere else that explain, or at least in my opinion, show that there is a future Israel, or a future God dealings with Israel, that God's going to deal with them again. And it's, there's a couple of verses that you just can't explain in Romans 11 unless God's going to deal with Israel again. But for now, we're back in Romans 9. And remember how... We'll start with verse 10, which is where we're at, but remember how the, the uh, it kind of goes back to Romans 6, or 9, 6, where, to get the context of what we're going to talk about. We're talking about where Paul, remember, he, he said he would give up his salvation for the salvation of Israel. So we're talking about, he's talking about Israel. And then in Roman, and then in uh, verse 6 it says, but it is not, it is not though, not as though the word of God has failed, for they are all not, they are all not Israel, who are descended from Israel. So that's what the point we're working on right now. And that's what we did the last time we were in Romans. Was we talked about how Jewish DNA does not save. Being ethnically ethnically, in, um, a descendant of Abraham does not save. And so that's the point that Paul's dealing with here. And last time we were in Romans a couple weeks ago. We talked about how Abraham had two children. He had more later on, but the two early ones that were that were dealt dealt with here is Ismail and um, whoever's in this chair. He gets to go to. He the first the first one of the flesh was by Hagar, was Ishmael, and so Ishmael was a descendant of Abraham, obviously different mother, but through Abraham, but he was not the one who God had promised he was going to first off build the nation of Israel, but second off he's going to bless the whole world through Israel, but that was through Je- through Isaac. And he, so he, Isaac was the child of the promise. Ishmael was the child of the flesh. That is to say, that was their idea. That wasn't God's idea. God's idea was, I'm going to, Sarah, I'm going to come back in a year and Sarah's going to be pregnant and you're going to have a child. And, and they were a hundred years old almost. So it was a miraculous thing. And then, they got impatient, or maybe they, I mean, who knows what their exact motives were, but they decided to 
speed things up or they lost trust for a little bit. And that's when he, the idea with Sarah was to have Abraham sleep with Hagar and that produced Ishmael, which produced the entire Arab world that we still have today. So we went through that several times. But, but the point is that Ishmael is a descendant of, of Abraham. He's not Jewish, first off. The second off, the promise didn't go through him. Okay, didn't go through Ishmael, but was promised to go through Isaac. And then we continue on where we're at. So you clear on that what we're talking about here? We're talking about how, because Israel rejected their Messiah, and they're unsaved, the, the, the broad group of them, there are individual Jews who come to salvation, but they are few and far between right now. There's more Gentiles being, being saved than there are Jews. And so the question would be, in verse 6, was, has the word of God failed? I mean, is, is the promise been broken? Has there been a change in the plan? And the, and the point he's making is the promise was that um, just being of the flesh, Israel, is not being, you're not saved that way. All right, so the point goes on in verse, now we are in verse 10. I can see this. Or actually, we'll just back up to verse 9. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come, and Sarah shall have a son. So again, re-emphasizing that the word of promise was the promise to Sarah to have a son, not Hagar. That was their sinful, fleshly decision that got Hagar into the business. But it was the promise was to go through Sarah. And then verse 10. And not only this... But there was Rebecca also. And so Rebecca is one of the wives of Isaac. Okay, I'm not going to go through the whole story of Isaac right now, but I mean, he, he had several wives. Okay, and, but Rebecca was the one he was always after, and she, and she was the one who, who ended up having Jacob. But she was kind of last in line before she started having children. But anyway... Just to give you a little background, she was Isaac's wife. Okay, so not only did Sarah have, was Sarah the one who was promised the Jewish race was going to come through, but also is going to flow through Isaac, through Isaac to Jacob. And okay, so that's what we're going to deal with here. So not only this, there was also there was Rebecca also, when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins had not yet been born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose, according to his choice, would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. It was said to her, The older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Alright, so we're going to spend most time dealing with this chunk of scripture here, because there's a lot of stuff in there. Um, but the first point we'll continue with is is the point is through, is that, um, so Rebecca conceived two twins at the same time, all right? Esau and Jacob, okay? And this not only was, in the first example, we had Ishmael and Isaac, okay, through, of Abraham's two sons, but they had different mothers. Now we have Rebecca only. There's only one mother here and one father, Isaac and Rebecca. And... And so we had a kind of a, a, another degree of 
of making the point of God is the one who determines where the, again, we're starting right now just dealing with how the Israelites came to be. But then we'll deal a little bit more about individual salvation. Um, so when she conceived twins by one of the same father, Father Isaac, okay, and, and, this, and she was told, okay, she was told in advance when she was pregnant, okay, that the older was going to serve the younger. That is to say, Jacob is the one who the promise is going to go to. Esau is not. And obviously it's, it's confirmed when it says, as it is written, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. So the two twins, Jacob and Esau, are in Rebekah. And she's told in advance, Jacob is going to be the one that I'm going to further the promises through. First ethnic Israel, and then eventually flowing through Messiah to the entire world. All right? Well, we'll get to that here in a little bit. We'll deal with that later on. But right now, I just want you to see that God is telling these people in advance what's going to happen. And the purpose of that is very clear. Okay, And it's even said that, it, that, it, that, um, before, um, and that the purpose, or that not only had they not been born, obviously, if they're not been born, they hadn't done anything good or bad. So God's determination to deal with Jacob, to bless Jacob, and not to use Esau, not to bless Esau. Esau was godless, unbelieving man who died in a sin. Jacob is somebody who God dealt with and saved and used to form the nation of Israel. But the point we want to look at here is that it, the, the reason God did that is not because of anything Jacob brought and not because of anything Esau didn't bring. So that's the purpose here that you're looking at when it says that God told Rebekah before either one of them were born or had done anything good or bad. And you see that where it says, so that God's purpose according to his choice, in other translations is according to election, so God's purpose according to election might stand. So this is a very clear passage. And a lot of people go to this when we're talking about election, and we'll deal with that here in a little bit where God is clearly making the point that he chooses to, to, to save Jacob and, and not Esau and deal with love, love Jacob and, and hate Esau. We'll get to, get, that into, get to that in a minute. Based upon nothing they brought. There's no future good or bad deed that, that, that Jacob did good or Esau did bad that determined his choice. And it's clear there it says, and before they had been born, or had done anything good or bad. Why? So that God's purpose, according to his choice, would stand. And so that's the real meat of what we're talking about here, is that God determines to use Jacob and not Esau based on absolutely, very clearly, based on absolutely nothing Jacob brought. It was just out of his mercy. He decided, and you always ask me, well, why does he decide the elect? Or how does he decide the elect? And that's the answer. He decides. The answer is there is no, there's nothing we bring. There's nothing Jacob brought. There's nothing anybody in the history of the world that God has saved that made, that made God decide to choose them to save them. Nothing. The, the point is, is that everybody is, is in rebellion against God and God decides to have mercy on some. You going to make your eggs now? No, not right now. Huh? We're in the middle of this. I'm, not, I'm just asking how long to cook in the microwave. You don't need That was a pretty big pile of bacon. for me. Oh, for you. Uh, it's just, 
think it was 30 seconds out here. You don't need any more bacon, Grace. Let's make it for her. Yeah, thank you. I see but what you're doing. You can have half a piece. Wait, what? Hey, that's the reason why I came out here to get bacon from me. Did that. Have Come a piece. on. You can have another waffle. That won't bother you. That's not fair. All right, let us continue, hon. We're recording here. Even you though nobody else should. All right, so but you see the intention yeah. there, and it's very clear. You can't. There's not many places in Scripture where you're going to find the clarity that it says directly that God chose to deal with Jacob and not Esau, and He makes the point that He He let Rebecca know before they had been born or before they had done anything good or bad, in order that His purpose might stand. So this is one of those verses where, you know, of course, not only through you know we're talking about the development of Israel here. It's God used, you know, that was God's choice, but also every single individual person. Well, you know, we've talked about many times where the people who believe that God's election is, is based upon a future choice, that God looks down the corridor of time and sees people who, he sees who would accept Christ and who wouldn't accept Christ, and then he chooses his book of a life according to what he sees in the future. Again, a couple of real major problems with that. First off, that would that would be God would be gaining information. Okay, that is to say, if God had to look down the future in order to see who was going to do what before He wrote the Book of Life, very clear that God would be gaining God would be gaining information there, and that would compromise or contradict His. Uh, I always get these omnis mixed up. His omniscience. He knows everything. Always has known everything. And so I wrote I wrote a whole essay on that dealing with that. Grace, Grace, please. Grace. That dealt with that whole issue. But here is here is one of the best biblical, clear biblical statements that would absolutely blow that theory apart. Because he again, he, what he's, he's talking about is purpose and election here. And not only just with the development of Israel, but also he obviously had to save Jacob and he didn't save Esau. So those were individuals, just like he deals with every other individual. Salvation is individual, and he is making the point here that he 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 called it in advance to Rebecca to prove, to show her that it's not anything that these kids are going to bring. It's not a future decision of of whether they are going to believe in me or not, whether or not it's before Christ or after Christ. And so it's just a very clear passage that talks about how God, when God chooses, He does it according to His will what he wants and why he wants it that's his business we don't know but we're glad as christians that he chose us because if he didn't we would have kept rebelling against him we never would have believed he would have he he had to regenerate our hearts effectively call our hearts to salvation and if he didn't we still would hate god and we still would love sin more than we love god so we thank him for that but it's very clear that he is the one in sovereign control of who gets saved and everything else. All right, now dealing with your question, which a lot of people, the first time they, you come across this scripture, a lot of people struggle with that, and I, I struggle with it, where it says, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. And, and a lot of people react the same way you did, when you talk about he hated Esau. And the question really should be not, why did God hate Esau? The question were, were the real question should be, why did God love Jacob? Because Jacob was wicked. If you just look at the history of Jacob, he's just as wicked as Esau, if not more wicked in a lot of ways. 
before God really changed his heart. But the point that you got to that you got to guard against is that God would be just, and the word hate is here, and so we got to deal with that word. But the reason God hates Esau, in a sense, we're talking about here, is he hates his unforgiven sin. God is angry with unbelievers, and he, you know, we talked about this many times where. Where when you're sharing the gospel with somebody, you have to, you know, the the biblical truth is that somebody who does not believe in Christ, they're under the wrath of God right now. It's not a future eternal hell that that's true if they die in their sin, but right now they're under His wrath because of their sin. Unforgiven sin provokes God's wrath, and so the real question is, incurs or causes. That an English cause, right? By English, I mean not big words. It provokes, provokes, you know, it's like when you when you provoke somebody to wrath, you're like trying to, you're causing somebody to be angry because of something you're doing. You mean like this? Yes, like that. Use, don't don't jump on this. You could use it like get your goat. Yeah. Mark, like that thing, he gets my goat all day. But the point is, is that God would be just in hating Jacob too. And again, I you know you gotta I think you gotta kind of separate because the Bible does teach that God loved the whole you know for God so loved the world. That means there's a sense in which God does love everybody, but there's also a sense in which God is angry with everybody, and especially unbelievers to a degree that they're under they're, they they hate God, and so so you gotta be very careful with that whole general God loves everybody equally kind of thing because He doesn't. No, he does not. He chooses. He, uh, uh, and yeah, he separates. He. It's just like anybody. It's like you know, you have love for your your family more than you would a total stranger on the street. And a lot of people struggle with. Well, why wouldn't you know? Why would you think? Why would you think that God would have uh, less of an ability to love in different ways if He chooses to? To be honest, I'd rather talk to a stranger on the street than look at that. Yeah, he's a, he's an animal. He's a dog. Yeah. He, well, you call him family, Grandma. But you see the point there, where the the question should be, why did God love Jacob? Because Jacob is just as as wretch as any other human being on the planet. That's the whole point. What we talk about? Why did he choose Jacob? It's, you always ask the same question. Hey, dog. Hey, you can't. Yeah, that's not going to work. I bake a, a plate of bacon in front of him. Yeah. No. Why? Why did? Yeah. So I'm saying. Why did he? I mean, why did he choose Jacob? Yeah, there's no answer. He just—that's what he decided. There's no, there's no biblical basis why he chose okay. to deal with anybody. I'm but like, it's, no, but I know. Well, maybe someday when we die. Yeah. But the, but the truth, what you do need to know is that it's not because Jacob was better than Esau. Right. That's the right. point he was making right here. It is not. And the, any Christian who gets saved, absolutely has. It's not because they were better than any unbeliever. And that's why that's one of the main reasons why you know, and I know it sounds like I just harp on election all the time, but we're dealing with it here because it's in the, it's in the text. But you can see a lot of my other stuff I deal with election because I do think it's important. Because if you don't understand as a Christian that the only reason you're a Christian is because God did something to you that if He would have done it to somebody else, they would have believed, and you wouldn't have. You should do a Q and A. So you get the entire He gets the entire credit. You get absolutely none of it. And if you believe the other the other theory, which we'll do a whole Calvinism thing sometime, 
but but the other theory would be that God does what's called prevenient grace. The Holy Spirit convicts the heart, and then it leaves it leaves it to the decision of the person. And so the deciding factor in salvation is the is the man, the person. And the Bible teaches, and we might get there today or not. The Bible teaches that rejection of the gospel is always the will of man, always, because that's what we want. We want sin. And so our will is we don't want Christ. So, but the Bible, every time the Bible talks about salvation, a successful salvation, somebody who is saved, or talking to a believer, addressing a believer biblically, always talks about it being God's will. And a matter of fact, we, in a couple of verses here, we're going to get to one where it says specifically that salvation is not by the will of man. We're about there, but we'll get there here in a minute. But that's why it's important, because... If you think you've made a better decision than somebody else who got the exact same treatment from God, same external gospel, same conviction of the Spirit, whatever you want to say, and you made, a, you made the right decision, and they made the wrong one, the deciding factor in heaven and hell is you. And that's just not biblical. So, and, if you, and again, we talked about last week, you'll have spiritual pride if you think that you made. Yeah, you could not have spiritual pride. I don't care how much you fought it. You're going to eventually think, if you really believe in your mind, well, I believed and that person didn't, we were given the exact same treatment by God, you are going to have spiritual pride. So that's the main reason I do it. And also, it, you know, a couple other issues that keeps the gospel pure. We've talked about that many times. If you understand God saves, that it's not the will, you're, there's not something left in the will of the, of the person you're talking to that's, that you can convince them to believe by their own power, by their own decision, if you believe that, then you're going to start to really try and maybe do some emotional stuff or maybe just soften the gospel a little bit or just, you know, you're manipulated a little bit. But if you understand that the, the true gospel is the only thing that saves and the Spirit has to work, and if He works, if He works, He, he saves. He doesn't, God doesn't, there's everybody that God wrote in the book of life before the foundation of the world will be saved. There's a guarantee, there's surely as He lives, they all will be saved. He's going to do different means and everything else, but it's a certainty. And, and anybody who's not written in the book of life will not be saved. And it's not because the, the gospel is not available to them. They just refuse to come because of the love for sin. But for the elect, he changes that. He does it. He changes your love for sin to a love for him. Changes your hatred of him for, to a hatred of sin. And so he, he switches that. But he does it. It's called rebirth. It's called being born again. Regeneration. That's what happens. All of a sudden, you go from not believing to believing. He did it. He did it. And you can see here, it's one of these very clear passages that teach that he's the one who decides and why he decides it is not based upon the will of the person. It's very clear. I mean, you couldn't get a more clear example. If, if God was going to, if it was biblical, that God chose the book of life based upon a future decision of each person. This would be very hard to explain, this ver these verses we just read, or this would have been a real opportune time for him to clarify that it is based upon future, you know. It's almost like he saw that, of course God's always known everything, but he saw that theory coming and he's like, you put this scripture in there directly to refute it, because it says, he was, she was told before they were born, before they had done anything good or bad, and then it was not by, it was because, according to his, you know, because of his purpose.
not their purpose, not their good decision, not their good actions or anything else in the future. And certainly you'd say it'd be a good thing. Believing in Christ is a good thing. Because that's how Jacob was saved. He was saved believing in a Messiah to come at his point. We, of course, believe in a Messiah who has come. But that's a good thing, right? And so, you know, if, he, if God's saying, well, um, before they were born or had done anything good or bad, that would, you know, that'd be something that would be a good thing in the future if he's saying, well, you know, Jacob, I saw him believing in the Messiah and I saw Esau rejecting in the Messiah. And so I, so I told Rebecca then, that's not what it says. It says, he, you know, it's according to his will. So... Before Esau, when he's born, he's like, he has to give up. No, let's say again, that's, that's, you've got to be careful with that because Esau, had, you know, we talk about the other side of, of that, that Esau was not blocked from, from becoming godly or becoming to God or be, believing in the Messiah. He should have and could have, but refused to because he loved sin. He loved his sin, just like everybody else. Well, again, we talk about this every time we talk about election. I, I, you got to be careful with the way you phrase that because... I mean, doesn't that make sense? I mean, if he's already been told? I would say that a person born... Again, we don't know, so it's, it's speculation. Yeah. You don't even want to really kind of talk about too much. But, if, yeah, if you're not born... If you're not, if you're not of the elect, when you get born, you will. But here's the thing. It's not because God's saying, yeah, I know you want to come, but I'm going to block you because I didn't choose you. It is he leaves you to your willful rebellion. Okay, so Esau could have come, but he willfully didn't. But that's that's the universal action of every human being: is they could come, but they all we all refuse, and we would have too. So it's not like, you know, well, poor Esau, he was born and he's just such a he just loved God so much he was just trying to get to him. But God said, you know, I didn't choose you, so I'm but that's not how it works. He, I would hate to have it in the Bible that says that. I know. It's, not yeah, I know. Yeah, you wouldn't want uh, Jan and I love Jay. I hated. You know, I know you do. My heart does go out to some of these biblical people because, again, the only difference between Jacob and Esau is God. The only difference between Judas and Peter is God. If if God decided to make Judas the Peter and Peter the Judas, guess what? Yeah. We'd be reading different names and different scriptures, and that was nothing Peter brought. And nothing, you know, it, uh, I mean, it was what Judas brought. Judas brought the wickedness. But if God would have decided to change his heart, not Peter's, well, guess what? You know, the, everybody would be naming their child Judas and not Peter. You don't hear too many people you know, naming their sons Judas or Jezebel or Esau. Why? Because they're, you know, very clear scriptures that talk about it. But again, if you got pride saying, oh, yeah, that Esau, what a numbnuts. He should have, he should have, uh, you know, not, you know, he, the, going to the story, it was... I mean, I don't know, just not to go through it in detail, just off the top of my head, where Esau was hungry, comes in. He's got the birthright. He's the, see, that's another point we need to make here, is that this is kind of unusual, too, that where he says where the older will serve the younger. That's not the way it's supposed to be. The younger, the firstborn, is the one with the, with the preeminence, with the blessing of the family. The firstborn son in, that, in the way this works. And so they were twins, but... Esau came out first. So he was the firstborn. So this is backwards, okay? So he had the birthright, but he sold it to Jacob for a cup of soup. That's how little he thought of God's birthright. And so he came in hungry one time, and he's like, I'm famished, and let me have some of that soup. And Jacob, being 
taking advantage. So it shows you how wicked Jacob is. Says, oh, well, give me, sell me your birthright and I'll give you a cup of soup. He's like, I don't care about my birthright. And he, he sold his birthright to Jacob. So that's how Jacob got his birthright. And he, he used him. He took advantage of Esau's godlessness. And so they both are wretched. And then, and then they, it goes on where to get the Isaac's blessing. To get Isaac's blessing. Go ahead and push him down if you want. Get down. To get Isaac's blessing, his dad, he, he actually cuts fur off an animal and glues it on his arms because Esau's hairy. This is what Jacob did. Goes in there and cooks, and, and then of course his mother's in on it too, cooks his big meal. Goes in there and, has, and says he, he wants the blessing because he's about to die. Isaac's about to die. So he gives, he wants to get, he's supposed to give the blessing to Esau because he's the older. He tricks him into making him think he's Esau by the furry arms and everything. And so he blesses Jacob, thinking it's Esau. But then Esau comes in later on and says, I'm you know, ready for the blessing. And he's like, Sorry, who are you? You know, he got he realized, realized he got tricked. So that's wickedness on every side, godlessness on every side. But God eventually did uh, um, change Jacob quite a bit. There was a wrestling match and everything else we won't get into. But he just shows you that God uses wicked people to accomplish His purposes, even the ones He saves. Peter, example, you know, every every example of somebody God does save and use. There's very David, you know, the whole Bathsheba thing. There's always wickedness. Paul, he was on his way to kill more Christians and imprison Christian kids and wives, throw them in prison, and they eventually get killed. God saves him, and you know, so he, he's pretty sad. Where, what? Why does God use sinners to accomplish His purposes? Well, it's because that's all there is. That's all there is down here, you know. When Jesus was talking about, he was going to dinner with a bunch of tax collectors, and the Pharisees looked at him and said, well, you, you eat with tax collectors and sinners. And, of course, he says, well, I didn't come to call the righteous to repentance, but sinners, or I came to call sinners to repentance, not the righteous, and there are no righteous. He was, he was uh, tongue-in-cheek mocking. They, the Pharisees thought they were righteous, and he was here to call people who knew they weren't. But I always want to, you know, say, and also, well, the reason he ate with tax collectors and sinners because that's all there is on this planet. You know, Jesus was the only one who didn't. And if he would ate with you, Mr. Pharisee, he would ate with a sinner too. You know, they just didn't realize it. So that's what God, he, he uses. But again, it kind of shows, answers that question. The question isn't why did he hate, why did he hate Esau? We know why he hated Esau because of his sin. Why did he love Jacob? Because he had, he had a lot of sin himself. So, but a lot of people struggle with that. All right. So now I think we're ready to move on. All right, verse 14. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, you know, that directly answers your question as to why does he have mercy on who he has mercy? Well, it just says, well, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. He decides. But the point in verse 14, is there any injustice with God? Absolutely not. May it never be. God never treats anybody. This is very clear, and then we've repeated this, but we'll say it again. 
God never treats anybody unjustly. Okay? People either get justice, what they deserve. People in hell get what they deserve. They don't get what they don't deserve. People who don't get what they deserve get mercy. So there's never anybody who's innocent that gets, gets treated like he's guilty. You see what I'm saying? Everybody's a sinner. So you either get what you deserve for your sin or you get mercy. People who are in the book of life, people who get saved, people who become Christians, they get what they don't deserve. Is um, Grace is always not only unmerited. You've heard that. What is grace? It's unmerited favor to the undeserving. But it's also it's really demerited. Not only do you get something you don't deserve, you get the, you get the opposite of what you do deserve. So when a person gets saved, they get mercy, something they don't deserve, but also they, they get what they don't deserve. Or they get... Um, how, how, how did I say it just a second ago? Where not only, not only do you have favor that you don't deserve, but you deserve the opposite of it. You deserve wrath. You don't deserve... Anything but wrath. So, the point I'm trying to make is nobody gets injustice. You either get justice in hell or you get mercy in heaven. There's nobody who gets treated. Like, there's nobody in hell who doesn't deserve to be there, I guess is my point. And God is perfectly just. Perfectly just. And one little side note, a lot of you know, a lot of people struggle, and I have too. I think everybody struggles with this at some point in time. Is how you have a lifetime of sin, and then hell is for eternity. There's no end to hell, and you struggle with the fairness of that. At least I do. It's like, okay, it seems like a lifetime of sin would be a, a finite amount of time of sin. Would not, you know, infinite, you know, wrath on that. But here's the point: you got to make a couple things is couple things. You're sinning against the holy nature of an infinite holy nature of God. That's one point of it. But also, just because you're in hell doesn't mean you stop sinning. You keep sinning in hell. People keep sinning. They actually they probably sin more in hell than they do when they're alive. They hate God, and they still hate God. And I've heard it said this. I can't remember who it was, but they say that you know it's kind of a they they believe that if if you pulled a, a somebody who's been in hell for a thousand years and you pulled him out. And he just, you know, extinguished the flame, sat him down, and said, "Okay, you've got two choices: you can love God and go be with Him, or you can go right back to where you came from." They said every single one of them would dive right back into hell. That's just the nature of the unconverted person. They hate God so much that they rather be in hell. And I believe that to a certain degree. Now I don't know; it's hard to deal with that. You know, the under, you know, if you've been there for a while, you might want to change your mind. But I, honestly, I. I don't believe it. I think you got to have a new heart to love God. And, you, and when, so when he's pouring out his judgment on people in hell, they hate him even more. They hate him even more. That's why judge, judgment never converts. It always takes regeneration. It takes God to do something to the heart. You know, even in the book of Revelation, chapter, I think it's 16, verse 11, where it talks about, you know, in the end times, he's pouring out judgment on people, and they've got a chance to repent, and they refuse to repent, even though they've got sores all over them, and these horrible judgments are coming down. They refuse to turn from their idolatry. They refuse to turn from their witchcraft. They return, refuse to turn from their immorality. They love it so much that even when even judgments actually, we talked about Romans 1 where everybody knows it's coming. They know it's coming. One verse one or chapter one, verse thirty-two. They know it's coming, and they still continue not only they not only continue to do it, but they also encourage other people to join them. But even in 
Like I said, Revelation 16, 11 talks about how even when the judgment is coming, it actually is coming now. It's not future. They still refuse to repent because the love for sin is so bound up in the in the heart. Without a new heart, and I'm not talking like the, the organ. We're talking about the nature of a person, the inward nature of a person. Without that being changed by God, it doesn't matter what happens. They'll go down with their sin. They'll go down with their sin, and we would have too if we didn't get changed. So, but the point there is, what shall we say? Is there any injustice with God? No, is the answer to that. God doesn't treat anybody unjustly, unjustly. But the last thing you want from God is justice. You do, even a Christian, okay? I'd say this every day. I'm like, Lord, you're merciful to me every day. Because even if you judge, if you judge me according to what I've done today as a born-again man, 10 years in, you know, got some, you know, I've got understanding of the Bible, uh, experience now to go along with it i still 10 minutes would be enough for him to throw me in hell because you just you're you still have that old flesh that pulls you in different directions and so he's merciful to his 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 christians but just think about with that you know that's you know the christians struggle with sin that's the, that's the mark of a christian it's not that you don't have sin it's you struggle with it you do, you're not the same where before you're just like yeah you know this is what i want to do now it's like oh and the struggles there, but still he is merciful to his people. All right, all right. Um, but again, he says, "I will have mercy." I love this is one of my favorite verses. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So guess what that means? He decides. He, he is completely up to him. Because it has to be up to him. Because if it weren't up to him, if he left it up to every single person in the history of the world and every person, then nobody would have ever been saved. Because nobody would want his mercy. Everybody would want their sin. And so that's why you're grateful that it is his sovereign decision, especially when you're a Christian. Well, the next verse says that. Yes, which one? Verse 6? So that it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. Exactly. And that's the one verse I was talking about a while ago where it says, that says directly, okay? So we're talking about salvation now here. And this is one of the most clear verses, one of these I have that I'll go at anybody who tells me that salvation, and this is what my dear brother knuckles who's no longer with us or he's in another church i miss him dearly but this is he kept saying that his salvation was still by the will of man still by the will of man and i just always say man you're gonna have to explain romans 9 so you just gotta explain it because it it couldn't say any more clear it does not depend on the man who wills or on the man who runs but on god who has mercy again we're talking about somebody who's saved here yeah talking and it kind of backs up to Jacob, I loved Esau, I hated. He's talking about Jacob here, the one who it's not because his will. And again, that was that was emphasized and it was told to Rebecca before they were born. So yeah, this is Romans 9 6 is one of the clearest one of those verses I have I don't have memorized, but I have written down. And there are others, John 1 13 and um, You're talking about 16, not six. Six. Romans 9 6. The one you just read. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or on the man who runs. I'm sorry, you're right. I have it. My one is marked out. Sorry. I'm like, 
Yeah. All right. Yeah, I have a note there, and I blocked out the one. Okay, sorry. Yeah, this is Romans nine sixteen. Yeah, I should know that. So then, it does not depend on the man who wills. I mean, it just that couldn't be more clear. And that's salvation. Rejection, damnation is by the man who wills. That is, but salvation is always by God's will. But on God who has mercy, you see the contrast there. Not on the man who wills, but on God who has mercy. So yeah, that Romans nine sixteen is a very clear, clearly declares that it is not man's will. Salvation is not the will of man. Why? It's not because they can't. It's because they won't. That's the whole problem. The problem with the will. The problem isn't that we don't have free will to choose whether we want God or sin. The problem is that we do have free will to choose. So I'm not denying free will. That's the problem. Because the, the, the human left to their own will will always choose sin. Always. No matter what. No matter judgment's coming or if it's future or whatever else. And just take a look at your own heart for a little bit. I do all the time. It's just left unchecked a little bit and you know it, it goes right back to whatever it is. You know, and that's why that's why as Christians we have to guard our hearts because even though we're saved, and you can't lose your salvation, you can get caught right back into the worldliness and right back into the life that you had before, because your unredeemed flesh, even though you got a new heart, your flesh wants to pull that way, and so there's the struggle there. But without without the new heart, you got an evil heart, a wicked heart, and a wicked flesh doing nothing but sinning, nothing but sinning. And one of my last tweets I tweeted was about how a lot of people think that, you know, I even hear good, solid preachers talk about how they think that um, unbelievers can do good deeds. I'm like, no, no, I don't believe that at all. I don't believe an unbeliever can do one deed that is good. Not one. Because it, in order for a deed to be actually good before, before God, you have to have, you not only have to have the actual execution of the deed, like handing somebody a, a a drink of water, you know, somebody's thirsty. The actual act is good. I mean, the actual human, on a human level, giving somebody some money, there's people who, who you know, do charitable things, but their intention is for their own glory, always. It's for their own praise. And so that immediately makes the action a sinful action because the intent has to be right. The only, that's why only a believer who's been converted can have a true intention. I'm going to do this good deed because I want God to be glorified. I don't want me to be glorified. As a matter of fact, it's you 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 get you should get to a point where you don't you you literally it repulses you to think that you would get glory for something because you understand you don't deserve it. You know, and so when somebody gives me a compliment, I really struggle with that because I don't want it because the truth of the matter is, especially on a spiritual anything spiritual, that I would have nothing. If God didn't save me, and, and not only that, discipline me after he saved me, that's just the truth. That's not false humility. I'm telling you right now, the only thing, when I do something good in a, with a pure heart, that is all him. And, and he, so he deserves all the glory. But that actually is a good deed then, because you've got the right attitude. You understand it's for his glory. and You understand that, you know, the humility that it's only because of him. That's why he gets all the glories, because he's the one who causes it. And the actual execution is good too. You know, you give money to, you know. And that's why we as Christians are called to especially help other Christians. You see some, another Christian without something, you got it, give it to them. You, you, I mean, it should be something on your heart to eager to do because the Bible says clearly that, you know, in James it says if, if a believer comes and says, um, I don't have any clothes or I don't have any food, and you say, be warm and filled and don't do anything for them, that's really bad. You know, almost to the point where it says, you're not a Christian if you if you treat another Christian like that. 
Now, I'm not saying you can't you can't in isolation treat somebody who's a believer in a bad way because we all have. But the practice should be you should be eager to do things for people who belong to Christ because that you have that common bond of the Spirit. But that's that's when you actually start getting into doing really pleasing deeds before God. Because even as a Christian, you can do something good, but for the wrong intention. And that's I'm not saying that there's not some quality there, because sometimes even just teaching the Bible or sharing the gospel, the execution of it's good. The person actually hears the gospel, but your intentions, you know, and I get caught up in this all the time. I struggle with, you know. But sometimes I just think, yeah, I, you know, I know my intentions are right, but I just want to get the message to them. So I think that's part of it's good. But, but ultimately, it's more pleasing if you have the right intention. Like I want God, I want you to be glorified in the, in this, and then you, and then He empowers you, and you know, and that's when I think it's a completely a good deed. But I, an unbeliever will never have that intention. Never have the intention to glorify God. They don't know God. They know of Him, and they know He exists. But they suppress that and they hate him and everything else. And so, and not only that, when when somebody who's real famous or anybody who does something and gets praised for it, gets the glory they receive, well, then that they usually just turn that into a, a vehicle to spread their wicked worldview. You know, of un, you know, unbelief. You know, people who. Every time we do a day, he saw Pastor Faith that they're on the game. Oh, did he? Okay. Yeah, I guess they are. I mean, when we went that one time, I know the fields, you know, uh, Dishman and Mallory and their, their families, they sit in there and go. Um, but I didn't know if you were or not. Wayne was playing at the halftime, you know. Oh, okay, yeah. He went and he said that he ran into him and Pastor Faith. Did he talk to him? He just said he saw him. I don't know. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. It's funny. I was, I was, I didn't know how knew all what he was doing. I just take a paper when I was taking David Kroger because I don't get the paper anymore, and I flipped that word. I don't know how they're doing. To be honest. Really good. All right. Yeah. I, mean, I imagine with Romeo. Yeah. No. Well, That's right. I read they lost. There was four. four New Albany Floyd Central's number four. Yeah, I knew Floyd Central. They Okay. Christian Academy's two and two. The only reason I know that because their coach was standing outside the other day, and I go, "Hey, how's your team?" He goes, "Oh, we're pretty good." I'm like, "What's your record? Two and two. They're usually they've had years where they're really, really good." I know. I didn't mean to go check that. No, that's all right. But yeah, I guess I know he's a basketball fan. I don't. I mean, I know he likes IU and whatnot, but he doesn't talk about sports that much. No, but he, Derek, but he, was, he did it was packed. Like you couldn't even sit. Yeah, we're Romeo. He's. He needs to draw that crowd. There's like two players, I guess, that score all the points. Him and East, and the rest of them weren't are young. He, I don't know if he'll be able to win it all on his own, but I wonder where he'll, he'll probably end up going to. I don't know where he'll go. IU, I guess. IU, and that's stupid. That's stupid. Really, Duke, or I don't know. Depends on what he wants. If he wants to try and win a championship, or Duke. Yeah, I know that's too bad. All that happened. All right, so we'll get back to it. That's all right. I just thought Pastor Faith. Yeah, I saw him a while back. I, I go over there and pick up, uh, did the leaves the other day. And, and we, uh, I'll do that. Well, I'm not going to put that on. We'll talk about it later. Do what now? All right. What? We had a mild discussion at Sunday school. <laughs> what, what, a mild? 
Uh, I didn't even mean to. I mean, it was really. Um, well, we'll talk about it later. It was really no big deal. Oh, we ended up arguing, not arguing, but I guess it was kind of arguing. But with who? Pastor Faith. You Just about to hold, yeah. It was something completely irrelevant. Or not irrelevant. But we'll talk about it when we're done with this thing. That's fine. We're in a flow here. I'm going to try and get to verse, at least through verse 18. All right. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, okay. Do you remember Pharaoh's in Egypt? He's the one who enslaved the Israelites and kept sending them warnings, warnings, and warnings, let my people go, and then all the plagues. For this very purpose, I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So again, what's the emphasis here again? Hey, the emphasis is God is the one responsible for Pharaoh ruling Egypt. Okay, so Pharaoh is one of the most wicked men in the history of the world, obviously. He was a bad one. But the point here is, um, that God raised him up, raised up this wicked leader, okay? God raises up wicked leaders. You understand, every leader in the world, in the history world, Hitler, whoever it is, God raised up. That is to say, didn't endorse their wickedness, obviously, but he allowed it. He chose to allow it, could have, could have chosen not to allow it. And so in, in that sense is what I'm looking at as he raised Pharaoh up. Pharaoh is a wicked leader. Hitler, obviously, wicked leader. And there's a lot of wicked leaders in the world, and every one of them happens underneath the sovereignty of God. And he does it to demonstrate, well, he's got purposes and everything. Again, we don't know the purposes of every single individual decision about why one leader gets to power at a certain time and everything else. But it's very clear here with Pharaoh. He raised him up. Why? To demonstrate his power against his wickedness. So he, he, he raised up a wicked leader. That is to say, he didn't, he, again, I'm very clear here, didn't, didn't cause any wickedness. God didn't. Didn't endorse it. Didn't approve of it. Didn't like it. Yet chose to allow it. Why? To put his power on display to the Israelites. These plagues and these everything else. And so, but again, the point he's trying to make here is that Pharaoh is a will of God decision. That is to say, he, he willed it. He chose it. And so, he, and so, but he had a purpose in it. Again, we'll, we'll maybe go through a whole other thing on the, you know, it kind of goes back to why does God allow evil? Very clearly, God allows evil because he's got a good purpose in it. Evil's not good, but God uses evil for his own good purposes. So, um, but the point of raising Pharaoh up is to demonstrate his power against his wicked rule. And eventually he drowned him and he sent him to hell when he tried to go through. I mean, this guy. Okay, Pharaoh, this guy. Think about this guy. All these plagues. Rivers turning to blood. Frogs, locusts, all this other stuff. And, he, and he, every time he'd say, okay, I'm going to uh, let your people go. And then, and then as soon as God relents on the judgment, he changes his mind. I mean, what kind of a fool? And then so he does another one, another one, another one. All And finally, after the death of all the firstborn, he lets them go. He had enough. But even then, he changes his mind and goes chasing after them. I mean, how? what? And that just goes to show you, an unchanged heart will never stop being wicked unless God changes the heart, no matter what kind of judgment comes. And so he ends up chasing them. God ends up, obviously, splitting the Red Sea. 
and letting the Israelites go, and they chase it, and they go after him, and they and he finally that's how he ends up meeting his doom. I think. I think I'm pretty sure Pharaoh was in there when they closed the sea up on him. But anyway, whenever he died, he died in sin and got judged for it. Pharaoh made all the decisions on his own, out of the wicked desires of his heart. God used that, raised him up, allowed him to rule, to demonstrate his power against him. Yeah, I said that in the notes here. Pretty good. I like the notes. Yeah. Go ahead. It just says here, um, to prove that God does sovereignly choose those who will serve his purposes and how raised you up refers to bringing forward or lifting up and was often used to describe the rise of leaders in countries to positions of prominence. Pharaoh thought his position and actions were of his own free choice to accomplish his own purposes, but in reality he was there to serve God's purpose. My name. Oh, that's the sum yeah. of the character. Yeah, that's really good. Yeah, that's really good. And I would say they were his own free choices, mm-hmm. but they were under the sovereignty of God. That's what you always have to understand about that, that, that's that delicate balance between God's rule over everything, but he, but he holds accountable for your decisions or your free will. Okay, And so again, Pharaoh was held accountable. God didn't cause him, didn't tempt him to do the wicked stuff that he did. But he did, and this is where you talk about the will, the ordained will of God. He did choose to allow Pharaoh to make those wicked decisions and hurt other people, obviously. And he could have chosen not to. That's what I always try to explain. I think if you just understand that one concept that God chooses every evil act, whatever evil act you can think of, God could choose not to allow it. So in that sense, he's, he is, and you got to be careful with your words, he is ordained it. He has he chosen to allow it because the person who's doing it has a wicked purpose, but he's got a good purpose. And, and that could be a million different things. You know, of course... The uh, Joseph, where you know he gets thrown into the pit and all this other stuff, and his brothers end up coming to him and meeting him, and they end up, um, and he says the clear verse, "Well, you meant it for evil." The the brothers threw him in the pit because they had they wanted him dead because they were jealous. That was their intention. God chose to allow it. Why? Because he had a good intention to get Joseph to Egypt and, and end up taking care of Israel in the famine and keeping their uh, keeping them alive. You know. So that's how that is. I think it's just if you just really grasp that one concept, it really opens up a lot of scripture and it gives you a very good understanding of God. I mean, it really does because a lot of people struggle with this. That they, you know, and if you don't really think about that, and, you, and a lot of people just don't want to think about it, like, oh, I, you know, I just can't think about how God could choose to allow um, evil. But again, you understand biblically, biblically, and this is another example here with Pharaoh. He has a good purpose and everything. And I always say to anybody who, who's an unbeliever who complains about, well, how could your God allow all this evil? I'm like, well, it's good that he allows your evil. Because if he didn't allow your evil, he could knock you over right now dead and throw you into hell right now if he wasn't being kind with you right now. That's the reality of it. Anybody who complains about God allowing <coughs> evil no. doesn't understand their own evil. No. Now, I'm not saying there's not excessive different degrees of evil, clearly. What Hitler did is different than what, you know, so when we talk about the T and tulip, total depravity, okay, that's, that's what the T and tulip is, the Calvinism. Total depravity doesn't mean utter depravity. It doesn't mean that you're as bad as you can be. You could be worse. There are people who are worse. But what total depravity means is that you're, everything of you has is, is been affected by sin. But I also would say 
And I mean this with all my heart. That if I would have been born in the circumstances Hitler was born in and lived in the same environment without any God, with, with God not uh, converting my heart like he clearly did in Hitler's, I can't say. Uh, I'm having a hard time believing I wouldn't end up doing the same thing. Because I know my heart. I know my heart now. And so I heard it said the other day, Hitler's one of us. Sorry. I mean, we all want to look at somebody like that and go, how could you? I, I, sadly, maybe I'm just different. I understand how, like, if, again, I just put myself in a different environment being raised by, you know, but God not only doesn't tempt or impute evil on anybody's heart, he restrains, he restrained Pharaoh. He restrained Pharaoh, or Pharaoh would have been even worse. But again, the clear purpose here and what we've been talking about all day today is that, yeah, God's in control of everything. All right, we'll finish up with verse 18. So then he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. Mm -hmm. So then how clear is that? So he has mercy on who? Who desires? Who he desires. So if he if mercy were dependent upon the will of man, say he he gives prevenient grace to two people, and it comes down to the decision of the person, that wouldn't make any sense. It would be he has mercy on whom whoever will, you know, it's not his. This is just a clear declaration of his sovereignty again. And also I want to make clear a distinction here when he talks about he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. Because it's also talked about, a lot of people struggle with, uh, like when Pharaoh, the story of Pharaoh, it talks about God hardened his heart. God hardens hearts. So if he, But what he does, it, when the, I think one thing to understand is that when God hardens somebody, what that means is he turns people over to their own desire. So when God hardens a heart, he doesn't, he doesn't impute evil on the heart, obviously, or he doesn't... It says he, that he withdrew all the divine influences that ordinarily acted as a restraint to sin and allowed Pharaoh's wicked heart to pursue it in an un, unbated. Yeah. That's what he, when God hardens the heart, he removes his restraint. The last thing any human being on this planet wants, and it happens to everybody, I think, at a particular point in time in their life where you just go full rebellion. You know, it's, it's where that's when God just turns you over. You know, and it's, I remember, I remember a couple times in my life, and one of them was when grandma died. She kind of held me in check in a lot of ways because I was scared to death of her. I really was. You know, I had a respect for her. And when she died, I kind of went full-fledged. I'm like, all right, I got no more restraints. You know, that was kind of when I went, got the earring, you know, and everything else. That was kind of, you know, looking back now, I feel like that's probably when God just said, okay, you want to be, you want to live your little rebellion? Go for it. And I got real bad. <laughs> but that's just my personal example. But that's, but he doesn't, again, when he hardens, it almost seems like God is, you know, doing something but all he's doing, or like he's doing something positive to the heart. He's he's actually passive in hardening. He, he, you know what I mean? He's he just okay. Takes a, he takes a step back, and yeah, he he withdraws himself or removes his restraint. And again, that's the one thing as a human being that you don't want is God to remove His influence on you, or else you're gonna go right down the slope to sin as fast as you possibly can. He won't do that to believers. 
He, he might have removed just a little bit to show you, okay, you want to live as a Christian like that again? Okay, I'm going to let you live like that. I've done this too. And then I'm going to let you have the consequences of it. And then I'm going to let you show how wicked it is. And then I'm going to, you're going to come running back to me. So there's a certain, but he never turns you over completely as a, um, as a believer. He does it under his, he's got a good purpose in that. Now, unbeliever, we don't know. He, somebody can get turned over and never come back, you know. But yeah, he's he's uh, it's real clear on that. All right, we'll end there. I think that was a pretty healthy chunk. That was good. Praise the Lord. Yeah, it's again dealing with election things. I, I almost I was thinking about all right, we're gonna do Romans nine. I'm gonna talk about election again because it is almost something. It might be into one trick pony on that, but I'm really not. I think it's important, and I guess it was one of my. All right. Well, let me wrap this up. Thank you all for joining us and. Until next time.